Good morning, everybody. Thank you for taking the time. Let's learn together. Today we're going to do, um, we're starting actually a completely new series. This series is called Meeting of the Minds. Because we have a summer ahead of us, we have the opportunity of really focusing on a different isolated topic. And this is going to be Meeting of the Minds where we're going to choose a number of svarim, a number of books that perhaps we've heard of, we've heard quoted, but we never really fully understand the thesis, the idea, the personality behind them. And what we're going to do is the following. We're going to spend a little bit of time learning the introductions to the Sefer. Now, we've heard, many, we've heard many snippets from here, from there. We're going to do the introduction in its whole, in its totality, because it gives us a sense of who this person is, what their Sefer is about. At any time going forward, we ever hear anything quoted from them, it'll give us context and appreciation of what's really going on. So this is, this is going to be the starting point. I'd like to start off um, by, by thanking, first of all, Dr. Judith Cohen and Eliezer Cohen, who are sponsoring today's shear for the yard site of David Yosef Ben Yisraka Kohen, that is um, Judith's son, Olav HaShalom, whose yard site is Boi Boi today, is Yud Aleph, Yud Aleph Tammuz. It's been how many years now? Um, 17 years. It's been, uh, it's been a long time, and Emetz Hashem, it should be continued alias neshama. His memory should always be a blessing for you and the mishpacha always. Um, also, today's shir is sponsored by Laser and Mireille Shulman on the 13th yacht site of Mireille's father, Harav Moshe Gedalia Halevi Ben Ra- Re- Re- Yaakov Mordechai, which is on Yud Gimel Tamuz, and also um, the past yacht site of Rav Uria Yehuda Ben Rebefraim Fischel, which was just passed this last week on Choftes Sivan. Mireille, that is... That is? Your, your father. Okay, so I apologize. So Rav Moshe was? Your father. I apologize for me getting mixed up. So we're between those two yard sites. And um, this is a special time for the, for the Mishpacha. God willing, it should always be a time of bracha. It should always be a time of aliyah for you and the entire Mishpacha. So let us, let us learn at the beginning. So here's the way we're going to do it. There's different ways of attacking this. And um, I can attack it more extemporaneously. Or we could actually learn a little bit inside. We're going to try to do a little bit of a balance of the two. Because as, as valuable as it is, you know, to, to, to hear it explained over, it's also valuable to see his actual words. The, um, in, in my personal journey, the Ramban was an integral part of my personal journey to appreciating Judaism. You know, I grew up, as many did, as a, um, as a, a young, young person in high school. And, you know, Torah didn't mean so very much. It was obviously important and practiced. But it, didn't really, it really wasn't yet at the core of, of my personality. And one of the people who was a changing factor in that was a person by the name of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Bleichman, who is the, the leader of the Chutznik program in Karen Biavne. And he opened up the vistas to the fact that Judaism isn't something you just do. It's something you live, you breathe. It's real. It's, it's relevant. It's contemporary. And uh, the first time I had an opportunity of hearing him just transformed my perspective of the world. And one of the things he said when I, when I actually ended up coming to Israel was he says, you really ought to spend some time learning the Ramban. Because the Ramban is the muscles on the bones of Judaism, if you think about that. We learn a lot about bones. We have a lot of structures. We have a lot of systems, right? So we have halacha, we have normative practice. We know what to do. We learn, you know, it might be the daf or Gomorrah. We, we get structure. But to understand the underpinnings, to understand really what, what's, what, what's the meat of Judaism, we need to have the machshava, this is the philosophy. The Ramban is really at, at the core of this. And he suggested we learn... Ramban on the Torah, because that's a very good, a good place to start. The issue is the Ramban on the Torah is hard. It's not so easy. And part of the reason it's not easy is because his language is so rooted in Tanakh itself. It's so rooted in the actual sukkim of Tanakh that his turn of phrase is ba- are, are usually rooted in some earlier text. And if you're not aware of what that text is, you can't appreciate the cadence of his speech. There are actually translations of the Ramban into Hebrew. There's a Tov Yerushalayim, which just translates the Ramban into modern Hebrew, into he- Hebrew which is easier to, to read. Is that fascinating? A Hebrew translation into Hebrew to make it easier, but it's worth cracking one's teeth on. It took a five-year cycle for me, but it was, it was, it was worth it just to, to appreciate the Ramban himself, the magnificence. <coughs> if I were to go back in history and there were a few people that had an opportunity of having the, the great opportunity of meeting, the Ramban would be one of them. And you get to know him more and more and more, the more of his writings across 
the, the broad spectrum of his perspective, one of the most fascinating characters of all time, one of the most powerful people, people who does not mince his words, does not give his compliments easily, easily but ultimately tell, uh, find, finds truth as it is. So that's, that's the, the, the introduction. Let's take a little bit of a, a, a moment to learn about it. I just noticed that we have an opportunity of wishing a special mazel tov to Marjorie and Steve. On Jacob's, on, Jacob's, on Jacob's engagement. It was very, very hard last Sunday morning, knowing that it was about to happen on Sunday morning and seeing Dr. Steve here and not saying anything. But Baruch Hashem, now, we're, now it's official. Imetz Hashem, it should be continued, continued mazel for you and the entire Mishpacha so, for, so, for so many more occasions. Um, let, us, let us start at the very beginning. That's always the very best place to start. Um, the Ramban, it's, uh, we should just be aware, is not only was the Ramban an incredible scholar, um, Donna, I'm not sure where it is. Are there any extras floating around? Okay, thank you so much. Oh, here we are. Donna, just behind? Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so let's, let's take, a, let's, let's take a, a starting point. The Ramban not only was a great scholar, the Ramban was also a revolutionary thinker and a revolutionary leader. He's the one, of course, who had the debate with Pablo Cristiani in Aragon, leading to when he published the transcript, leading to his expulsion, so to speak, from Spain, where he moved to Israel. And his trip to Israel revealed many things we've studied together at different times. You know, his arrival at the port of Akko and how he moves to Jerusalem, the shul of the Ramban, and a number, how, how his trip and his experiences informed his writing, even on his Pirishat Torah. Remarkable, remarkable individual of, of great magnitude. Let's, let's, let's start off at the very beginning. This, this, this introduction to the Torah says a lot about the Ramban, but it also says a lot about the Torah. What we're going to do is we're going to look at each paragraph, but we're gonna, I'm going to start with just a number of questions, which should be basic questions, but sometimes the most basic questions are the ones we overlook in Judaism. We take them for granted. So let's start at the very beginning. What I did was I divided it into eight sections, and each section is about a paragraph or two. Um, the first one is how and when the Torah was given. So to start this, I'd like to ask a few basic questions, and then we're going to see how the Ramban addresses them. Question number one, and this, should, this might seem obvious, but when was the Torah actually given? Now, that, that, that may seem like an obvious question, because uh, after all, right, we know there was the Sinai experience. But in the end of the day, there was a lot of experiences that happened before Sinai, and there were a lot of experiences in the Torah that happened after Sinai. So when was the Torah given? Right? That's a pretty basic question. We all, you know, we all have this certain, in a certain sense in our preschool you know, view of things, but there has to be more, it's more sophisticated because time is more sophisticated. Now, another question is, how was it given? You know, like, so, so how does that account for the later experiences that, that, that happened after Sinai in the Torah? After all, Sinai occurred in which parasha? Parashas? Yisra. Yisra. Yisra, right? Yisra is n- not even halfway through the Torah, right? So what happened after that? How was the rest given? A b- uh, important question. Another question to think about is, what does the word Torah mean? We talk about it all the time. Right? But in the end of the day, what, what does that word actually mean? What is it referring to? Is it referring to the entire corpus of the literature that is of Torah? Is it, referring to, is it a limited aspect of it? Is it, is it a sub-description? What is Torah? And finally, and this is a question that I'm going to leave for everybody to consider as we go through this paragraph, is what is the Ramban introducing? What is the Ramban introducing? It, it, this, is called, this is called the introduction to the Torah, but let's be a little specific and see what the Ramban is really introducing here. So let's start at the very beginning. Here's how he, he, um, how he starts. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu Kosov HaSefer Moses wrote this book. And that's the question I'm asking you is, what book is he referring to right now? Okay, so let's, let's, I'm just going to put that as a question in the background. Im HaTorah Kula, with the rest of the Torah. That should indicate that it's not the only part of the Torah he's referring to. What book could he be referring to? So possibility number one is that maybe it's referring to Bereshus. So let's, let's review this first sentence for a second. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote this book, meaning the book of Genesis and the rest of the Torah. Why is that, why is that important for us to know? Why is that a significant statement? He wrote everything. He wrote everything, but let's, let's think, why might you think otherwise? Because he is not in it and he wasn't alive. <laughs> so that's the starting point. Ramban says, he wrote this book, Genesis, even though he wasn't around at this point in time. In fact... There were 3,300 years before Moses was around, which he's talking about in this book. Yes. Could be Possibly, but remember the word kosav is significant, right? It wasn't Mosar, it wasn't that he transmitted, it was that he wrote. But he says kosav Yes, but the, what, what book are we re- talking about that was written? Yes, it's possible, it's possible, but again... What book is he introducing? What book is this actually, this book actually attached to? We're talking about Bereshus right now. Yes, Ben. Why can't it be all from Sichon? 
Because the issue is, is he says, Im HaTorah Kula, with the rest of the Torah. Okay, so you see here, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of vagueness as to what it could be. As to what the rest of it could be. Yes. So we, he actually is going to get to that exact pasta because it's very hard to know. So where does Torah start? Where does Torah end? And we should be aware right now that it cannot be referring to Nevi'im and Ksuvim because that's not called Torah specifically, right? So could it be maybe the Torah Shabbat Peh? But then the verb Kosav is a little bit ambiguous because writing refers to the, to the written Torah. Just to appreciate the complexity here. So there are a few possibilities that you've already raised which are floating around. Let's, let's see how he, did, did, how he did, defines this. Yes? Good, yeah, so he's, you, you're right, Abi. he is giving an innuendo to that Gomorrah Baba Basra, which refers to Kasa Sifra Ver Sefer Balak, that does not seem to be Shara Kutara Kula in this case. Anyways, we have successfully read, read the first half of the sentence and already appreciated <laughs> and already appreciated the fact that there's complexity over here. Now, he says, he says where did this all come from? From the mouth of Hashem. That's a really important statement. We'll get to why in just a second. Vakorov, Vakorov, it makes sense. He says, what's sim- close, meaning what it makes sense to me is Shekosvoi Behar Sinai. It was all written at Sinai. Kishomne'em Marloi. Now he quotes the Pasuk. And this is why in this version of the text, there's actually vowels. So this version of the text puts vowels when there's a quotation. Alei Eli Hohara. Come up to me on the mountain. Ve'yeshom. And be there. And then on the mountain, Ve'etna. Ve'etna lecho es luchos even. Vatora v'amitzvah shekosavti lehorosam. I'm going to give you three things. What are those three things? The stone tablets, the Torah, and the mitzvah. Those are the three entities that are given to Moses at Sinai. So the Ramban explains, what are they? Okay, the tablets, we got that covered. We know what that is. That's a very limited, finite description, right? So that's those two tablets. <coughs> the third category in that pasuk, which is mitzvah, mispar that is all the commandments. Yes, yes, no, no. So what's left over for Torah then? If we've got the, we've got the tablets covered, and we've got the mitzvahs, so the commandments, positive and negative covered, so what's left over now? Ah, oh, very good. So now he says, He says, So the Torah refers to narrative now. That's a very fascinating point. And that means to say that any time we re- read Torah, we can essentially divide all of the five books of Torah into two categories, essentially. There's obviously the Luchas, which will be its own category. We'll put that aside because that's a very limited, it appears in Yisra and Vayaschanan. But the rest of it can be divided into Mitzvah and Torah then, essentially. Torah is the stories, the narrative, and Mitzvah refers to the commandments, the normative practice. That's very important. So, for instance, Bereshis is primarily Torah. Vayikra is primarily Mitzvah. Shmos a little bit of both. Do you see that? You see what's happening over here. Any par- parish that we go through has a little bit of both. As an example, we learned Parshas Chukas yesterday. The first <coughs> section of Parshas Chukas is a section of <laughs> is actually mitzvah because paradomi is this is what you do. It's normative practice. Then Miriam dies and the be'er disappears. That's Torah. That's story. Just appreciate what the Ramban is doing over here. It's important to appreciate that they are separate and how the two inform each other um, and in advance each other. Now he says, why is this so? He says, Ki hu ha-noshim Why is it called Torah? Because, what's it, what does it do? What's Mora? Like, like the Mora we had from, from day one when we first went to school. She, it teaches, right? Mora, it teaches us the way to live. That's fascinating. Isn't it interesting? Because telling you what to do doesn't necessarily tell you what to be. Do you notice that? We all have laws, right? There's tax code. That doesn't mean to say that it's going to tax code produces ethical people, Right? In fact, it sometimes allows people to become very unethical. But sometimes a story has the capacity to be able to teach us a little more than of what to do, but actually how to be. That's what the Ramban seems to be saying over here. And therefore, when we learn a story about how Avram Avinu treats the regular passers-by, we learn values of how to be more than it would be when the Torah explicitly says, do such and do that, do, uh, do X and do, what, do Y and do Z. And therefore he says, Amai <laughs> Oh, I apologize. I skipped a sentence. He says, When he came down from the mountain, So what happens? When he descended from Sinai, he wrote down everything that had happened up till that point until the conclusion of the Mishkan, which was given at Sinai. That makes sense because that's what he'd either witnessed or been told about. Right? But then 
He says, Ugamara Torah Kosav Besoif Shnas Arboim Kasher Amar Lokoyach Sefer Torah Ze. Uh, that's very close to the post like you were saying Ben just a moment ago is that the end of the Torah that's when he takes the entire corpus because now that he's lived the next 40 years in the desert he now writes about everything he's experienced and he adds that to we'll call it stage one and together those two pieces now form Torah as we have it as we know it there is an opinion in the, in, in the Gomorrah in Gittin, which says that the Torah was given, what's Megillah? Megillah literally mean? Scroll by scroll. Why, why was it necessary to be written scroll by scroll? Because they experienced it increments. Right? It would have been, it would have been unfair to the human mind to have received the parasha of Meraglim before they did it. Right? That wouldn't have been very fair. That would have, in a certain sense, predetermined them to a specific bad decision in their lives. And they wouldn't be able to live with that. Or they would ultimately, like Macbeth, Lahavdil, fulfill that prophecy because it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. So therefore the Gomorrah has one opinion which is, Megillah, Megillah, that it was written in increments as they experienced. So after a particular moment, the Ramban's being very general, the Ramban says, there were two moments. Moment number one was Sinai, everything up till then. And then there was the end of the de- desert experience in the 40 years be- uh, before that. Very simple. He does actually see that there is another opinion in the Gomorrah. And he says, He says, the other opinion is, is that it was actually given at the end of the 40th year as one entire corpus. In other words, there weren't fragments up to this point. It was one corpus of material which was given to us at the end of the 40 years. He, did, he doesn't say before at Sinai because that, that would have limited our ability to be able to act. But at the end, it was all given to us. So up to that point, all we had essentially was the Luchos and the experience of Sinai, but not the actual written text, necessarily. Okay, this is just, a, just an important basic, basic fundamental, is, is how the Torah is given, what does it include? What is, what is beautiful over here is that it's interesting that when we refer to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, we actually use the word Torah, which is fascinating because he's saying that the word Torah actually refers to one specific dimension of it. Okay, this is, this is section one. Ramban has uh, introduced the Torah. Now, it's going to get a little more complicated because what is actually this Torah? You know, of course there's mitzvahs, of course there's, there's sipurim, there's the stories, but it's a little, more, a little more sophisticated than that. That leads us to the next section. So questions over here are the following is, is how is the voice that when we read the Torah, how is the voice, the narrator, so to speak, of the Torah different to the narrator of the rest of the prophets? We have a tripartite decision, right? A d- division. So we have Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim. How many books in total, by the way? Just the way it's generally divided. 24 books, right? Five of those belong to the Torah. That means to say there's another 19 which belong to Tanakh. And actually there are more. Because the, the 24 division, you know, merges together Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Beis. Aleph It also merges together the Trey Asar, the 12 minor prophets. So there's a lot, actually, technically speaking, there are more, if you want to say, Svarim books. But so there's 19 at least beyond of Nevi'im and Ksuvim. How does the narrator voice, how, which indicates what is actually going on, different to the other Torah? That's question number one. And the question is, is how is Devarim different to the four previous books of the Torah? Now again, these are things we, we know, right, because we do it, but it's, it's important to articulate it again. Let's start at the beginning. So he's in the second paragraph now, he says, I'll call upon him. It would seem to me, he says, if it is true, like I am saying, says the Ramban, that Moshe Rabbeinu is essentially the narrator of the entire book of Genesis of Bereshis, so how should the Torah start? God spoke to Moses saying, this is what you should t- say about creation. And now let me tell you something. Right? But that's not how it begins. It begins as if, Bereshis, as if we have this sort of silent narrator in the background, right? That's fascinating. If I thought about that, if he's the one writing it, then why don't we want why, why are there no quotation marks? Aval, Hayaha Inyan, the matter is Likosev Stam, it was written Stam. What does the word Stam mean in this case? It means without without author. Without author, without attribution. Okay, so Bereshis is written without knowing who the narrator is. Moshe Rabbeinu never wrote the Torah as a first-person entity, like other Nevi'im. As an example, Hashem spoke to me, saying, who's me? Yechezkel himself. So we're hearing it from the first-person experience of that prophet. As another example, 
Another a very personal experience that they're describing. However, Avol Moshe Rabbeinu Kosav told us Kol Hadoros Harishonim VeYichus Atzmo VeToldosov Mikorov Kishlishi Hamadaber. Moshe was always the third person narrator. He was always describing it as if from the objective perspective, right? So therefore, it's as if he is hovering above creation, witnessing it as a third person at every stage. And it's as if he was in the tent there with Abraham, as right every step of the way. He is the silent, omniscient narrator. And therefore, even when Moshe Rabbeinu is born, he still describes it as if he's the third person narrator, the omniscient narrator in the tent. Not as if, oh, now God spoke to me, because he never shifts into that. He remains that third person narrator. And because of this, therefore Moshe Rabbeinu never features until he's born, because the narrator is always a third person. And as if another person is, is describing it. Why is that important, by the way? Why is it significant before we get to the next step? Why is this such, such a critical part of the giving of the Torah? Because it comes from God. Because the Torah didn't come from Moshe Rabbeinu. It came from Hashem. It's so important. Moshe Rabbeinu is the lawgiver. And the lawgiver has to be completely devoid of personality. It can't be that, you know, one day, and we, 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 we see this all the time, all the time. You read a newspaper article specifically about political issues, or Israel as an example, there is always a bias, whether it be pro or against, many times it's against, but the, the starting point of the article has already got a bias based on who's writing it, and they're already, their, their life, their experience, their leanings, their political, their political <laughs> visions, are already informing the way they're going to frame the issue. You know, I remember once I was at a panel where, uh, where we had the editor of Haaretz and the editor of Arutz Sheva, very different news agencies. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a YU event, YU Honors event in Israel. And I remember, the, so the editor of Haaretz gets up there and, uh, and he was basically bashing any small news agencies. And he was saying how no small news agency has the ability to be able to be objective because they simply don't have enough journalists, they don't have enough people to cover it. They have to rely on second-hand stories. There's no way they can objectively cover any story. So the editor of Aretz, it was just funny because the editor, the editor of Aretz had, had an English accent. And the editor of, uh, as you know, Baruch Gordon at the time, um, of Aretz Sheva, you know, at Memphis, you know, Tennessee, strong southern drawl. And he gets up there and, uh, and, he, sa- and he basically says, there's no such thing as objectivity in, in the media. And he's, his example is something which stuck with me, and it's, you, can, you can reframe it in any way possible. And he says, imagine the following. He says, um, he says to a, a family, a, a family um, of Israelis were returning to their home in Yehud and Shomron yesterday. They were attacked by Palestinian assailants, and they apprehended the, 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 they were attacked by, with Molotov cocktails by assailants. They apprehended the assailants. That's the story. He says, let me reframe the same story. Yesterday in the West Bank, um, Israeli settlers assaulted a Palestinian. They claim he attacked their car. Same story. But it depends who and what you want to tell. It's exactly the same facts. It just depends how you're describing it. Moshe Rabbeinu is not a narrative. Right? It's, it, today the word we have, everybody has a narrative. Right? Everybody's allowed to have their own narrative. When it comes to the Torah, there's no narrative. And therefore there's no narrator. Because it is objective. That's a very, very important part. As opposed to as it's supposed to be with all of them afterwards, where their personality is very much a part of the experience. And you can hear the anger of Yirmiyahu. You can hear his blood boiling as he speaks to the people. And you can hear Yechezkel's sadness. You can feel it. But that's not supposed to be with Moshe Rabbeinu. Even when Moshe Rabbeinu gets upset, it's described from the external side because he is the lawgiver. And therefore, yeah. Oh, good. So that's his question. That's the next question. He says, but wait a second. That's true for the first four books of the Torah. What about the fifth? So his, his question is, and that's the end of this paragraph, don't, Abinajar, ask the question, where he seems to be speaking on his own terms. And I pray to Hashem, I here is. Moshe, I prayed and I said, no, 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 he says, he says, it's how's the book start? These are the matters that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke, quotation marks, here was the final speech, I'm going to print it for, for the sake of posterity.
You understand? It's all in quotation marks as described in the third person, which is essentially the framework of the, of the speech. Just a brilliant way of, of looking at it. And this is different between Torah and anything else which comes afterwards. Okay, so this is, this is in terms of narrative. So what we've covered so far is when the Torah was given, what it includes, and how it differs from the Rishar and Avim. Yes, Tibi. So essentially what he's saying is, is there, yes, this was Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu's speech, but this is described from the third person. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu spoke through prophecy. We'll see in a second now. And now I'm going to quote for you what he said. And here is the he and what he said. And open inverted commas, paste. Right now, you, you may say, well, where did he get the speech from? We'll get that into, into that in a second. Okay? So uh, let's, uh, let's, let's take it further. Yes. Oh, good. So one of the Maharal says a very important point. The Maharal says, as you say, Doctor, that that that, um, that one of the reasons that Moshe Rabbeinu was a kvad peh was because what what he conveyed was not because of his oratory skills. It wasn't that people listened to him because he was a wildly popular leader who was able to take the masses and convince them to do horrific things. It was because the values that he was talking about were so real, and what he was conveying was completely devoid of any um, any other tricks um, of the trade. Uh, that's uh, to, to, uh, to advance this idea. Let's take it one step further. The next section, uh, the questions are the, fo- uh, the following. Is, um, is this, let, let's understand why is it that there was no narrator. We covered a little bit of that. And what was the, what was the Torah before Moshe Rabbeinu wrote it? So like, what could you point to it? Was it a tradition? What was the Torah before it was actually written down? And when did it originate? Can we say that this idea of Torah, when did that idea of Torah originate, if it was only written down at Sinai or perhaps the end of the desert experience? So when can we point to it? Is it a, is it a physical, finite entity or not? And now we get into the more Kabbalistic side, side of things, where Ramban now starts pushing into a much bigger perspective. Up to now, we've been dealing with historical truths. Now we're going to deal with Kabbalistic truths. Here's, here's the next step. Vatam, the reason is in paragraph 3, this is section 3, why was the Torah written like this? It was preceded not only the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu, but the very creation of the world. So now, I think people struggle with this concept because, you know, we kind of imagine, you know, nothingness and a Sefer Torah. Right? <laughs> right? So, you know, there was, a, there was a Torah hanging out there in the void of... We're not talking about space. Space is an entity, right? Nothingness is before space, right? So nothingness in a Sefer Torah, that kind of... How does that work? You know, what, what did the mantle look like on that Sefer Torah? Who dedicated that one? Right? So how does that work exactly? So <coughs> not so simple. Not so simple. So here the Ramban now says the concept of Torah clearly is more than what we look at when we have a, pr- a printed Torah. And he says, We have a tradition where he quotes the Yerushalmi and the, Devar, the Midrash and Devarim Rabbah. Shows the Kesuvah, the Torah was written, Ba'esh Shechara Agabe Esh Levana. It was dark energy upon light energy. Now, obviously, what, when we, what, what, how is that represented in our Torah today? When we write the black ink on the white, there's a certain, you know, metaphorically, symbolically, we are trying to recreate some of that energy. Right, we're trying to create what that energy pattern looked like, but clearly it was much bigger than simply words on a page. That's, that's what the Ramban is suggesting. And Moshe Rabbeinu was simply annotating. He was simply being dictated that energy or those ideas, and he was turning that into, we have a scroll today. Okay, but that is the physical expression of a much deeper concept which existed beforehand. Everything, including his last speech to be, was in fact dictated from Hashem. It had some form of root in this energy. This is referring to Yirmiyahu's relationship to his scribe <coughs> called Baruch ben And as he talked, Baruch ben uh, scribbled down the notes. Moshe Rabbeinu, so to speak, was the scribe of God talking about this, uh, this idea. That's a very hard idea to understand, what this dark energy on light energy means. Very hard to, to understand, but at the very, very least, what we can, uh, in, in a certain sense, articulate is, it, is that there are certain primordial ideas or values which existed in the form of energy, and they were now being translated from potential energy into kinetic energy, so to speak. They're now being translated into a finite world. Can the infinite be translated into, into finite? 
Very difficult question. Meaning to say, in the end of the day, we can measure a Torah scroll. We can measure its dimensions. We can measure the letters. We can measure the amount of words. We can measure the amount of space. That's all finite. It's all measurable. Can an infinite corpus be measured in a finite space? That's the difficulty of that transition between the first stage to the second stage of Torah. This helps us, this, this concept helps us by a Kabbalistic concept which is, which is quoted in the Zohar. Notice that he's not quoting the Zohar. Rabbanu very infrequently does that. He quotes other sets of Kabbalistic literature called Hechalois. We're going to see in a second. Pirke um, Hechalois. But, but ultimately there's a, there's a concept which you're all familiar with which is Histakel Bo'araisa Ubara Alma. Hashem looked into the Torah and created the world. What some people usually would describe as the Torah is the blueprint of creation. And it's very hard to conceptualize what that means. And here's saying that the energy and idea of God's, so to speak, ratzon, his will, is expressed in the form of energy. And as it turns into writing, it is in this world. Now, in that transition process is what we're going to focus on in the next few lines. What happened? How can you crystallize infinite into finite? That's, our, that's the question which, which remains in front of us. Um, so in order to understand this, we're going to, the next step of, of, our, of our journey together, and I'm not sure we're going to get to the, the full end of the journey, is, is that transition process. How can, you, how can you encompass all of that into this? Right, which seems to be a finite space. Also, um, how, does that how does that express the natural order? How does it relate to the natural order of this world? And one question which also is important for us is this concept where we're going to dis dis discover called Chamishim Share Bina. The 50 gates of Bina. <coughs> Bina is like li literally understanding, loosely translated into English. How does that relate to what Moshe Benu is doing over here? So we started very historically, but now obviously this is, this is very deep I I understanding, very deep uh, material. So let's take a quick look at the next paragraph. He says, So he taught him first the creation of the, the earth and the heavens. Who's him? Meaning, and who's teaching him? Hashem. So in this process of narration, in this process of dictation, where Hashem is describing, the first thing he chooses to tell Moshe Rabbeinu is the natural order. Okay, just appreciate this, because just to put this in a historical context, there's other things he's not telling him. He's not telling him other historical facts and tidbits. You know, by the way, by the, when, when we created Antarctica, that wasn't part of the right. There's a, there, there's a, there's a bigger scheme of things over here. Kilomar Brias Kol Nivra, the creation of every entity that exists. Halyonim Vatachtonim, the celestial and the, the terrestrial beings. Everything which is included in Maase Merkava and Bereshis. What are those two things, by the way, just to appreciate? Maase Merkava literally means? Merkava means? A chariot. It is, a, it is described twice in Tanakh by Yecheskel on Yeshayahu, Yecheskel Aleph, Yeshayahu Vav, where it describes the throne chamber of God, which essentially means to say the way that God moves in this world. And the, char the chariot of Asher literally is made up of angelic, Hosts and different tiers of angels as the energy moves from God into this world. And so Yechezkel describes this in great detail. So Maase Merkava is one of, the most, one of the most esoteric aspects of the Torah, but it's not the most esoteric. The most esoteric is actually what's called Maase Bereshis, as the Rambam describes in Hilchos Yesodei Torah. Maase Bereshis is not just how Hashem moves through the world, but how the world was actually created. These are very esoteric things. So everything is, is in the Torah. Vamukubal, Bohem. And all this is incorporated into the four nether um, um, entities. What are, the four, uh, what are the four entities that he's talking about? Yeah? Good. So referring to actually, they put in the notes here in the Menachem Seal, which is great, which is fire, um, wind or air, um, water and dust. And we think to ourselves, you know, about, you know, we think about the dark ages sometimes, you know, when people were bloodletting for all this, all, 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 all this business to equalize the different forces in the human body. But there actually is more, more to it than this. There's much more to it than this. We've learned about this a little bit together beforehand. Of course, these four concepts are referred to the, four, the three states of matter and energy, naturally. Right? So, Afar is, of course, is solid, solid, solid mass. Maim is liquid. And, um, and uh, um, Ruach is, of course, gas. Aish is energy, which is, of course, the byproduct of, trans, of, of transition between each of those stages. So, there's much more going on here. As a, as, as a whole, there's a, there's a bigger system over here. So he's saying all these basic systems are being conveyed to us. Um, these are the quarries, so to speak. The, the, the natural world of movement. And the, the speaking spirit. Moshe has explained all of this. Everything of this, everything of the natural order was incorporated into the Torah, whether explicitly or implicitly. 
By the way, in, in the previous uh, uh, system that he was describing, he talks about machtsev, which is a quarry, tzimchei adama, which is the, 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 the things which grow from the earth, nefesh atnoah, the movement, nefesh amadaberes. Those are four steps. What are those four steps? Just in terms of that's another, t- another sort of structure of creation. That's moving from the inorganic to the organic to the liver to the, uh, basically essentially from inorganic to the flora to the fauna to the human. Those are the, that's also another way that's that, that we, we divide all of, all of creation. So again, all these different silos of creation are being described to him. And therefore, he says, Ukfar Amru Rabbosainu, quoting a Gemara which appears numerous times, he's quoting it as it appears in Rosh Hashanah, There were 50 gateways of wisdom which were given to the world, and all of them were given to Moses except for one. That, that one separates him from God, so to speak, meaning because he couldn't exist separately from God if he had, didn't, if he had that 50th Kshar. And it says, as the Pasuk says, Vatachasreyu Ma'at Me'elokem. You made human humankind, or Moshe and Rabbeinu in this specific case, just a little less than God, meaning just a little less perception than God by these 50 Sharibina. Now, what does that mean? 50 gates of, of, of where do we find these gates? Are they hiding? Where, where do we find these gates of wisdom? Are these different systems of wisdom that we're looking at? Where do we get these from? Yomar, he says, Ki Chamishim Shari Mishal Bina, Ki Ilu when you look at the quarry, which refers to, we'll call the terra firma, right? Physical, carbon-based um, existence. When you look at that, there is one bina, there's one shar bina, there's one, ent- uh, we'll call it, open aperture of wisdom, which expresses all of that, is included in that. And when it refers to flora, the plant kingdom, then there is one gate of understanding just for all of that. When it comes to botany, and apparently it's interesting that the trees are, have a separate gateway to basic organic plants. Of course, we have a different bracha for each of those categories, but it's fascinating that they're separate in, this, in, this, in the Sharebina. Of course, the wildlife, fauna has its own gate, and avian life, the bird life, and insect life, and aquatic life. And of course, then getting humans, which means to say, how many how many gates have we covered so far? About six, seven here, right? So we, we, that's that's only seven of the of the, of the forty nine that we have access to. <laughs> so if you to really get to understand this world, you have a different gateway to each different part of creation. And should you really master that, you would get that. I remember that if anyone had the opportunity of ever reading T. S. White, he wrote a book, Camelot, the Once and Once and Future King, and the first section of the four books is called. Um, the sword and the stone. That's where it originally comes from, before Disney invented it. And it's really actually worthwhile reading it. And in the first section, it's a really beautiful description where Wart, who's this young, going to be future Arthur, is, is talking to Merlin. And he's talking about how, and it's much more magnificent than, than how Disney does it. But it, there's, this, there's this beautiful scene where he talks about wisdom. And Merlin was describing to him how many lifetimes it would take to master each science. You know, and you're saying three lifetimes for physics, you know, two lifetimes for chemistry, a lifetime for mathematics. You know, and, and he was describing how many lifetimes it would be just to become an expert in one, one field, in, in one field of knowledge. And, like, and you think about this, people, people spend their entire lifetime becoming very specific experts. And what he's saying is that there, is, there are 50 gates, 49 which you have access to, which we can understand in the world, and those were translated into Torah. So we're talking about a lot of stuff, a lot of information is being translated uh, into this book. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is how did that work exactly? <laughs> what was the translation process? So uh, we, uh, being as we are, we, are, we are moving towards the end of our time, and I don't want to leave us uh, um, on the, the cliff edge, just a few, a few points as we, as we go further, and I really highly encourage everybody to take the opportunity to learn this, um, um, uh, as families or, as, uh, or personally, um, to, to appreciate this, but nonetheless, he said he talks about the following. He describes how that the Torah, of course, is not simply words. There are numerous other aspects of Torah. So, for instance, other parts of the Torah which are also there are the framework of which words were described to separate. Meaning, say they can be recalibrated into different words as well. There is also the crowns, the bigger letters, the smaller letters, the paragraphing, the ta'amim, the cantillation. The gematrios, the, the, the actual um, um, numeral value, which means to say numeric value, if you think about that, it's almost as if there's different frequencies of information which is being conveyed to us through the same paragraph. All of this is being conveyed to us. I remember that 
I believe, I'm trying to remember this, the Balaturim says a remarkable, no, it's Rabbeinu Palti on the Torah, says a remarkable gematria, and I need to get it right. I believe who? It says, Kiloi um, Dovareiku Mikem. And I believe the gematria is, um, is gematrios, I believe that. Meaning that when you say, oh, people say, oh, it's just, just a gematria. No, no, it's referring to, actually, the, the gematria itself, the numeric value, has a, a way, is a way of conveying things. The cantillation, as an example, when the Torah says, the Torah is Vayamararu es chayehem ba'avodah kasha. The Torah says that the, the Egyptians embittered their life with, with, with terrible work. The, the cantillation is Kadma va'azla revi'i. Kadma va'azla revi'i. Right? Vayamararu es chayehem. So what does that mean? If you think about it, why did they not have 400 years of service? So one of the explanations <coughs> is that the, the prophecy said 400 years of servitude. Why didn't they have it? Why did they only have 210? One of the answers is, is that it was so intense that it was actually, it was, it, it was squashed into 210 years. Why? Because of the bitterness of it. What does the word Kadma Va'azla mean? Which is literally the, the translation of that cancellation. Kadma means it got up, Va'azla and went. So through the Kadma, through the Vayamararu Eschayehem, through the embittered life, that's how Kadma Va'azla, they got up and left. Which means to say, it's not just the words which are conveying meaning, it's even the cancellation which is conveying meaning. So there's, there's numerous different channels that we are express, uh, understanding as we are reading the Torah, which are incorporating all of these different levels of, um, of meaning. Then he goes further to say the following, just to, uh, to take it to the next, the next level. He describes, and this is very complicated stuff, there's very complicated ideas, but he describes how, where, in the, where did Shlomo HaMelech get his wisdom from? You know, like meaning, where was he able to derive it from? And he says a remarkable thing. He says, although Hashem opened up his eyes, it wasn't that Hashem put in, so to speak, a USB drive, right? And it was extra information. All he allowed him to do was to see the information. Meaning, it was all there. Just what he did was, was a, a, a lev shomea, uh, uh, that he was able to hear. He was sensitive enough to appreciate everything which was already incorporated in the Torah. So the movement from that energy, that white and black energy, has moved into the natural order as expressed in the creation of this world in every tier of, of, of translation of words in this Torah, was now for the sensitive ear could be understood. So Shalom HaMelech's access was being able to tune into the frequency. When I was younger, there was a, I, I, once, I, I once got as a present, for a birthday present, uh, to create a little transistor radio. You could make a radio, and you got a certain bandwidth, you could actually tune into all kinds of different channels. It wasn't so audible, but it was a lot of fun to make. Um, and it was interesting to me is that you could tune in, you could hear Chinese frequencies from South Africa when I was growing up, if you just did it the right way, if you just had the iron at the right place, the I, the, so the diode at the right place across the, the, copper, the, the copper wire, the good old, good old fashioned, you actually made the radio. And the fascinating thing about that is, is that you can hear what you have the bandwidth to hear. If you don't have the apparatus, then the, the frequencies are out there. Right? The radio waves are around us. We simply are not, are not able to tune into them. Shalom Melech was given a, a, a broader bandwidth. His, his, his receptor was enlarged to be able to perceive what was really going on. We, on the, we have our fractions of pieces that we are able to put together and understand and appreciate. That's what he does. And he actually he quotes in Aramaic from some of the Sfarim which are attributed to Shalom HaMelech. It's a very fascinating description. We're not going to go into that right now. But I want to take it into, into uh, one level further. In fact, included in that is he describes how Shalom HaMelech had ancient wisdom of what was called Tayar, which is language of the birds, so to speak. We're familiar with that. Um, he describes ancient traditions which had it. it, it Marvin always tells me the following story, which is a terrifying story. Why is that? Perhaps it's not a good idea to know this. You know, there was a fellow who, um, who wanted to learn the language of the birds. He went to some great sage or master, and he asked to teach, and the man said to him, uh, you don't want to learn the language of the birds. It's not, it's not for you. He says, oh, please, please, please. He begged. He prepared himself. He spent years looking, looking into it. And finally, this person relented and taught in the language of the birds. So the, ne the next week, he's walking down the block, and he hears that what there's going to be there's going to be a large fire in this area of town. So because he's aware of this, what he does is he sells his house, and he he's able to get out. And lo and behold, there's a fire. Everybody loses their real estate. He he sold just at the right time. Phenomenal. He's walking down the road and he hears the birds talking, and they say, "Oh, this fellow over here, you know, there's going to be there's going to be pestilence, um, and all the livestock is going to be killed." What does he do? He sells out beforehand. Lo and behold, in, in the next few weeks, all all the all the livestock does. He's he's got his money. He's safe. And then a few weeks later, he's walking down the street and he hears the birds talking and they say, you know, that fellow who's walking below us is going to die. So now at that point in time, what do you do? So he runs to, 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 to the master and he says to the master, what do I do now? Now at this point in time, so the man says, I told you you shouldn't have learned the language of the birds. You have to understand, 
there was a decree which was, which was to, to, clara- to cleanse you for a number of things that you need in your life, which was going to take place on your house. But you didn't allow it to fall on your house. And then it was shifted to your animals and your livestock. And you didn't allow it to take your livestock. It says there are no alternatives left. So like you mean to say, that's a very terrifying, terrifying story. But what, what's being said over here is that Shlomo Melech had access to different levels of conversation, different levels of communication which are occurring in the world, which, which, uh, which the Torah yeah, I mean, gives access to if a person is tuned in. Now he takes it to the last level, and this is perhaps how we'll close today. I'd like just to turn to the last page of our packet today, and this is really the most important aspect of this. And this is... Um, a, a, a concept which, we've, which I'm sure we've heard in different forms or fashions, but it's really important to appreciate um, over here. To the very top of the page on the right-hand column, it's page 12, he says, Kabbalah shel emes. We also have a true um, tradition. This is, I guess, the deepest level that he's describing over here. The entire Torah are the names of Hashem. That the, that the words can be divided into the names of Hashem in a particular way. Instead of saying, you can shift the spaces of those letters into a different formulation to give another, yield another, another meaning. Okay, and the rest of the Torah is similar. Just forgetting all the rest of the connections of letters and gamatrias and numeric values. He quotes Rashi on the Gemara. He quotes three psukim about the, the movement of Israel in Parashas Peshalach, and he describes, you put those psukim together, and you merge them together, you get the 72-letter name of Hashem. He says, that's why it's so critical to maintain the posterity of the Torah. There are certain <coughs> words where, let's say you have a letter there or not a letter there, it actually doesn't make so much of a difference in the pronunciation. So, for instance, let's say the word oisam, them, that's usually spelled aleph, vav, taf, mem. Now, whether you have that vav there or not, it's actually the same word. Oisam is actually the same word whether you have that vav. It's called malay or chaser. Do you have the cholam has the vav with it or not? But he says the reason why it's so critical to have the Torah, which is extant, which is, the, which is as close to the original, is because conveyed in it is the different, we'll call it different ways of breaking up those codes into the names of Hashem. By the way, today, what they've done is, we, just, we learned this about two, three years ago, we had an t- opportunity, we learned about the Torah today. How close is the Torah today to the Torah of Mos- Moshe Rabbeinu? We went through that a little bit in the statistics. There was an experiment which was done by Rabbi um, Rabbi Breuer, who, 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 who compared basically all the traditions of the Torahs, or different traditions of Torahs, and he compared them. And what you do is, if there was a majority of ones which were one variance, and there was a minority, a small minority, of a, a, another variance, we understand the minority, of course, was where the mistake crept in, and he basically uh, did a sum conglomeration of all of the majorities, right? All of the majorities. And he contrasted that to the earliest versions of the Torahs, for instance, the Aleppo the Codex, as an example, and so on. It was found... That comparing the two, there were seven differences. Seven differences. There are over 3,000 in, the, in, in, the, in the, the Old Testament translations of, of, of English. Right? Just to appreciate the difference, over 3,000. So there's seven of them, none of them relating to meaning. But this is, that's, that, that's just important in terms of the posterity of the, of what we'll call the, the general co- control and, um, and Masorah of Torah. But what he's saying over here is, is that when you were looking at the Torah, we're not just looking at words as they are. Because if we remember that that's going back to that primordial energy, that primordial energy is really an expression of God. And it expresses of we have to divide up finitely into particular concepts and ideas, and now we start talking about oxes that go, right? That doesn't sound very godly, right? But we're, we're essentially taking a concept and giving it a finite expression, but were you to reshuffle those same ideas, you would actually see godly will expressed on a much higher level. That's, that's what the Ramban seems to be saying over here, which is why a Torah is very important. And therefore, even when you're reading the end of Parshish Vayishlach, which talks about the names of the kings of Edom, and you think to yourself, you know, <coughs> I'm going to go into cruise control for this. Actually, really, if we were to really, really um, be attuned to it, we'd understand some of the greater concepts or depths of the Torah. And therefore, the Ramban says, as he concludes his introduction over here, there's a very powerful paragraph in section 8. On the top left, he says, I'm going to explain to you what I'm doing in my, this is what I'm attempting to achieve. I'm going to act like the, earliest, the earlier people before me. And I'm going to make it easier for the poor Jews who've been in exile now over a thousand years by the time he's writing this. 
Hakruim, Bisadarim, Bishabasas of Muadim. I'm going to take the concepts of Judaism and make them accessible to the poor Jews who spend so long working and only have Shabbos and Yomto to ever relax and think again. I'm going to give them a, th- a few things. I'm going to give them beautiful ideas and imim, beautiful concepts. And those who know chen, what is that referring to? When the Ramban says that, mystical stuff, right? So chen is is chen refers to those who have deeper concepts. allow us to find the right the right concepts. And he says, I'm going to give you a warning now. He says, as you're about to start reading, I'm going to give you a good, a good advice. Anybody who's going to read my book. Don't try to work out when I explain the deeper concepts. He says, You ain't going to get it. Your logic will break down when trying to understand what I'm about to explain. Unless you have a master, unless you have a teacher who can open these concepts. You know, sometimes we do talk about the Torah as having four levels. Pshat, Remesh, Drush, Sod, right? So the outer level, the Drush, which is a deeper level. Sod. How do you translate the word Sod? Generally speaking, we say Sod means... Secret. Now, secret is a funny word in English. It's actually an inappropriate, la- um, an inappropriate description. Why so? Because secret is a relative term. Meaning to say, let's say that, uh, that in this room I have to tell you a secret, right? So I'll, I'll tell you a really important secret. Well, that means to say that the secret is us, apropos those who are outside of the room, right? Meaning us vis-a-vis those who are no lo- not in this room at this point in time. But were you to let out that secret, then they become part of the inner circle. And relative to others, that it is a secret. But that's not the word sod. Sod itself, when it comes to the, the, the we'll call the mystical level of the Torah, is objectively <coughs> sod, which means to say the following. The way that our Tats explains it is, it's kind of like bike riding. Right? So for all of those who've, who've, ha- who've had the experience of trying to teach their children bike riding, right? it's kind of, you know, you can explain it and explain it and tell them and tell them and push your legs and go forward and try to avoid the ground and whatever else, all the sagely advice that you, you give. But until they actually get it, None of that made any sense. And then when they get it, everything you said is unnecessary because they got it. Right? Because it's a skill, right? So the same thing over here with Sod. When it comes to Kabbalistic concepts, the Ramban is saying, is I'm going to give you, I'm going to explain all the things. I'm going to explain to you in my period. And by the way, what he does is, he first explains, he brings Rashi. Then he brings in Ibn Ezra, usually to dismiss. Then he brings the Midrashim. He gives you the corpus of, of Jewish thought. And then at the end he says, uh, he says, Derecha Emes. And in the way of truth. And that is where he starts what he calls Yodei Chen. And he says, those concepts, he says, you can put the words together. It ain't going to make sense until you've really f- learned how to bike ride. And if you aren't bike riding, it's mumbo jumbo to you. Right? It's not going to mean anything. So he says, don't try that. And that's why, by the way, when it comes to the art school Ramban, which is excellent, when it comes to the, the Tov Yerushalayim, which is excellent, they don't translate those into English and Hebrew. They don't translate those sections because it is, it is, it is beyond the capacity unless you have somebody who's leading you through it. And that's why, so when we learn the Ramban, we're learning basically three-quarters of the Ramban. We don't learn the last ends of, the, of his paragraphs, but we should be aware of it in the sense that based on the continuation of his of his introduction, is the Ramban is keying us in, is keying those in to the deeper concepts in Torah, trying to tap back to not just a historical narrative, but the idea, the energy that underpins this entire world. So this is the introduction. Of course, now we're all going to go out and buy our own Rambans, naturally, and we're going to spend time on this because it's, it is one of the most phenomenal and in, in, insightful perspectives in Judaism as a whole. Um, but uh, this is the end of this section. And Mesashim will start the next introduction next week, God willing.